0: Cowardly, unbelieving, vile, murders, sexually immoral, practices of magic art, idolaters, consigned, lake of fire. Kind of an upbeat passage to begin the new year, isn't it? Yeah. Actually, Revelation 21 is one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture. Stunning both with its vision of the future for humanity and for the universe, and with the affirmation that it brings about what it means for for us to be alive in the presence of God. Uh, before we dig into that, though, uh, just let me say thank you. Uh, we're looking back over 2023, and uh, we enjoy a great, rich diversity in, in our worship. And a lot of that has to do with the makeup of our worship teams. And this week, they sort of said, hey, Pastor, what do you think if we did something with a bit of a country and Western flavor? I said, yeah, we'll Bring it on. You know, what's the worst that'll happen? And boy, you guys know that. Karina Lee over and said, I didn't think I'd ever be singing Chris Christopherson in church. So thanks, worship team, for, uh, for bringing us. Thank you, Solomon, for leading us in prayer. Uh, the new year is upon us. Emphasis on new. I mean, we, we say happy new year, No guarantee about the happy part. I pray it is. I mean, I I pray that the worst of 2023 gets left behind and that we carry forward a vision for how God can be at work in our lives, doing something that's new and fresh. Because we're fascinated by new things, aren't we? Especially those who are in an area that is, it's just teeming with newly refreshed things every year. Canadians, GTA residents. It's always in front of us and things seem to go out of date so fast. Teachers will tell you that, right students? You can't use last year's textbook. You gotta go buy the new edition. Students will try and convince their parents that they can't get by with last year's model of phone. They need this year's update. Style gurus will say, you can't get away with wearing last year's colors. You need to wear this year's colors. We're fascinated by new things. And and at the risk of being maybe a little bit more philosophical than we're ready for in the morning, um, I think there's a reason for that. And part of it has to do with what it means to be human there is something in us that that yearns for newness in fact you could say that it yearns for for eternity it's why there's something in us that that recoils at at the idea of of loss that, that things would cease and i think that there's this reality well hey i caught a glimpse of myself coming out of the shower you know from yeah you don't want to hear this but we sense that we're fading away. We see ourselves sagging. We're, we're wrinkling. We're, we're decaying. And we want to say that's not natural, even though I guess it is natural, it's inevitable. But we want to stay new. So New clothes and new diets and and New Year's resolutions. We're finally going to get back to it. We're going to take charge of our lives. We're going to exercise. Now, at some level, all of it's putting off the inevitable, the fact that we know we're falling apart. Nature is subject to to futility. That's the word that the Bible uses to describe it. Romans 8, one of the great chapters in the Bible. Romans 8, verse 18 says, I consider that all of these present sufferings, everything we're going through, all the hardship, all these present sufferings aren't even worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Romans 8 goes on to say that creation itself is waiting in eager expectation. The language there is the language of, uh, of pregnancy, labor, and delivery. We're waiting for the full term to come, for, for the children of God to be revealed, because creation itself, and here it is, has been subject to futility, to frustration. It's like creation is going through, and the biblical word for it is labor pains. Labor pains. Things are subject to decay. Everything goes to pieces. That white post in your front yard, if you leave it alone for 10 years, it's going to be a gray post unless you do something to renew it. We are falling apart. You're losing your hair or you're gaining it in places that you never thought you were supposed to have hair. What's coming out of my ears? You're starting to sag. And to address all of this, we have a multi-multi-billion-dollar industry that grows up in order to prevent us from feeling our age and looking our age. The cosmetic industry uses makeup to try and get back our youth. But we're fading. We use refrigeration, uh, not for people, not, not yet at least, but as a way of keeping food from decaying. But it does Eventually. We use formaldehyde, well, yeah, formaldehyde, we know what we use that for. We, cosmetics and, and all of it. The fact is the Bible tells us everything is falling apart. Nature is subject to decay, and we hate that. And so we love the idea of newness. And we come to Revelation 21 with its repeated refrain that, that there's something new going on. Behold, God says, I'm making all things new. There is a new heaven. There is a new earth. Now, now the language that, that's being used there, the, the language of the Bible, wasn't written in English. Thank goodness, right? Because English takes forever to learn. But it was written in Greek. And in Greek, the word new, actually there's two different words there. One is the word Neos. You know that word, neo. It's a prefix when we refer to new things. It is neo. So neos, say that. Neos. The other word, and it's a word that we don't have in English, is the word kinos. Say that, Kainos. Look at you Greek scholars early in the year. Hey, and thanks to Sheldon who caught that, multilingual expert, I had the wrong word or the wrong pronunciation in the first service. Kinos. Neos. Neos, two different words. Neos means something that is new, that has recently appeared. So Dante and Tamia, there is something neos in their life. A brand new baby girl. Congratulations to them. And we just, we love that, don't we? We love that. That That is neos. Wasn't there yesterday, it's there today. Neos. But the word kinos, that's something different. It's also translated new, but it's not talking so much about duration. wasn't there yesterday, it's here now. It's talking about a quality of existence, the feeling of newness, like that new car smell. Now, you get that new car smell when you get a new car, but I'm told you can actually spray that thing around in an old car, and you got new, that would be kynos, kynos. Not talking about duration, it's talking about quality. This is the quality of being, the quality of vitality, of vivaciousness, of of freshness, of newness. We put on makeup, not because it's neos. We don't actually do anything to reverse the number of years that are on our birth certificate. But it's kinos It's that feeling of newness when we do it. So we started bright. We start to fade. We're looking for a little bit of kynos. We, we start together. We feel we're going in pieces. We start strong. We're getting weaker. We're looking for the quality of newness in our life. Kynos is not about duration. It's about that quality of brightness and vividness and strength. And Revelation 21 is saying something that's revolutionary, and it's incredible news, and it's news I want you to hear at the beginning of a new year. In God, there can be kynos without neos. Say that. Kynos without neos. And you go home and you say to your family, hey, guess what we learned at church today? Revolutionary. You can have Kynos without neos. And they'll say, I, I am never going there. You guys are nuts. But Kynos. I mean, in the world, apart from God, that just doesn't really happen. Kynos without neos. In order to be new, you have to be new. But but something happens in God. In order to, to have that going on in your life, it doesn't mean that, that everything that was old gets jettisoned, thrown out, recycled, and we start fresh. No. In God, things get newer and newer, brighter and brighter, more and more vivacious. And we don't have a category for that. Things get newer every single day. They get brighter. They get more vivid and strong every day forever. Instead of something having to be young, to feel young, things can continue to get more and more vital. And God's power is such that as it comes into your life, wherever the lordship of God is at work, his power is being expressed, there's newness. God says, I'm making all things new. Whether you're 20 or 89, I'm making something new. And I know that's kind of a deep concept for for the morning on the first Sunday of the new year, but let's just play with it for a little while because underneath the diets and the need for vacations in new places and, and the new clothes and the new things that give you a temporary little thrill, there is that deep aching need for eternity. Again, eternity is not so much a measure of time, like however much time you've got, it's that much more extended out to, to, well, a limitless thing. It's not so much about length of time as it is a quality of existence. And we ache for it. We need eternity. We need this newness. And Revelation 21, this passage, says something about the newness that God is about. It's often the future, but there's also something that we begin to experience right now. We're going to take a look at those two things. The newness that's often the future, the promise, the hope that we have, but also the taste of it that we get right now. We'll talk about the future part first, the newness that is to come. Let's read again Revelation 21, verses 1 to 4. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along with me. Verse 1, I saw a new heaven, a new earth, For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. In the Bible, sea is is chaos. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now where? Among the people. He'll dwell with them. They will be His people. And God Himself will be with them. And He will be their God. And what will that be like? He will wipe every tear from their eyes. No more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain. That's the old order. And all of those things have passed away. New heaven and a new earth creation that had been subject to decay is no longer frustrated. Everything is free to be as it was designed to be. Jesus talks about this, Matthew 19, about the restoration of all things. In fact, he talked about it in a way that had such influence on his disciples that when Peter gives his very first sermon in Acts chapter 3, Peter says this, that Jesus remains in heaven but he's not doing nothing. He remains in heaven and until his coming. He's at work with God. And what are they doing? They are restoring everything. Psalm 96. In fact, so many of the psalms. But Psalm 96 is a great, great place to give us a starting point. And it starts with our own firm frame of reference. What we see. What we know. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar. Let the fields exult. It's a psalmist's way of saying, look outside. And as beautiful as nature is outside, those those stirring mountains, those those beautiful seascapes, the the wonderful wilderness and all of that, it's still just a dim shadow of what it could be and what it will be when Jesus renews it all. It's not just that, that we're falling apart. Creation itself is not as it should be. Floods and earthquakes and tsunamis and death and decay. In some ways, the, the world, the universe, has been hurt by us. The very earliest stories of humanity the Garden of Eden story, talk about that moment when human beings presented with a choice. You can do life with God, or you can try and do life without God. You can yield to the wisdom and beauty and design of God who is the architect of all things, or you can try and go your own way. And human beings selfishly and stupidly decided, we'll go our own way. The word for that was sin. And the the metaphor, the analogy is the apple that represents we 're going to lean on our own choices, not on your own wisdom on your wisdom but but interesting the, the moment human beings made that decision it wasn 't just something that happened in us, the fracture of our relationships with God and ourselves and other people, something happened in the world, metaphorically, Genesis describes it as you know the Thorns and thistles began to appear in the ground. said, you're going to have to toil blood and sweat to try and generate food to eat. And creation itself cracked in that moment. I don't know exactly what that all means, but it does mean that creation is also on its tiptoes waiting for all things to be made new. One of my favorite sayings, written by an old English martyr, a man named uh, John Bradford. Listen to what he says. He says, if this universe out there, with all of its canyons and seas and skies and beauties, with all of its infinities and immensities, if this nature is what God gives his enemies, which is what? Most of humanity is until Jesus works in us. If this is what God gives to his enemies, can you imagine what kind of world he's going to give to his friends? The universe is going to blossom. One of the people who was fascinated with this idea um, was a writer of high fantasy. In fact, he's was the, the first great writer of high fantasy. Um, many of you know him, and many of you know his works. Tolkien, J.R.R. Tolkien, was a fine Christian man, deeply devoted, lifelong believer, and he saw the epic stories that he was writing as a kind of allegory or metaphor to tease out some things that he wanted to say about God and about the world of God. And then at one point in his epic, The Lord of the Rings, he's trying to describe a place in a way that gives us a taste of what Eden was like, what the world was like before it cracked, and what the universe will be like when it's no longer sullied by sin. He says that Frodo looked at the grass and the trees. He was amazed. And listen to what he writes. He says, Every shape seemed at once clear-cut as if it had been first conceived and then drawn out at the uncovering of his eyes, both ancient, as if it had endured forever, and present at the same time. He saw no color except those that he knew gold and white and blue and green, but they were fresh and poignant, as if he had at that first moment discovered them and made for them names that were new and wonderful, no blemish, or sickness, or deformity could be seen in anything that he looked at. In fact, he felt as if he were inside a song. Isn't that beautiful language? He felt as if he were living inside a song. What Tolkien is trying to do with his words is is tease us with this idea of the glory and the beauty and the immensity, the the infinity of riches that lie underneath that description of new heaven and new earth. But not only that, not only are we told we get a new heaven and a new earth, on top of that, there's a new humanity. It's not just nature that gets renewed. It's us, you and me. Revelation 21, verse 3 the dwelling place of God is now where? With us. Among human beings. He'll live with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them. He'll be their God. And just to drive the point home, he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. What does that mean? What does it, what does it mean to be glorified, for things to be renewed, that newness that is to come? We're told many times in the Bible about it, and it's astonishing. It's astonishing. For example, 1 Corinthians 15 says, what is sown in our physical bodies gets raised up in spiritual bodies. One of the most astounding passages that you'll ever read. It doesn't say that when we die, our body goes to seed. It says that, that what begins in us physically culminates in us spiritually, we are sown a physical body, we are raised a spiritual body. If you want some idea of what it means, think Jesus after the resurrection. Can you imagine that? Not resuscitation, not I died and then I was gone for a while and then I gasped and I'm alive again, inhabiting the same old worn out flesh. No, the life of Jesus, that that newly given life hardly begin to imagine. But I know this. I know that right now, body and soul are often at odds. I've seen people with the most beautiful souls, trapped inside ugly bodies, deformed by by age and injury. And I've seen people with the ugliest of souls and the most incredibly beautiful bodies. That disconnection, that's that's the result of the fall. It's what sin does. A spiritual body, a new body, like clear glass, where you can see all the way through, right to the glory of the soul. You see beautiful things all the way down. What does it mean when the Bible says that you'll run without growing weary, you'll walk without being faint? What does it mean when it says we're going to be glorified? I can't begin to imagine, but I... I want to give you a tantalizing possibility. Right now, we, we understand the world through five senses, don't we? You can, you can touch things, you can taste, you can see, you can hear, you can smell. And all those, all those senses are subject to decay. We don't hear like we used to. We struggle to see with the clarity we once had. And on it goes. But what about this? What if in our glorified bodies, we have a hundred senses operating with perfection? Can you imagine that? We have a tendency to think, maybe I'll see, but I'll see a little bit further. I'll have 20-40 vision for a change. I'll be able to hear, but a little more clearly. I can hear all the way up to the kitchen when my wife is calling me to do something. <laughs> What would it mean to be alive to the wonders of God's presence, to the breathtaking scope and beauty of His universe, not just with five senses, but with 5,000? We're going to be glorified. All things new. This is the point in the sermon that uh, often I I say jokingly, this is the turn. About 15 minutes in and you're wondering, okay, uh, so what? I mean, it's good, but... What difference will it make when I wake up tomorrow morning? What possible practical application will this have in my life? There is nothing that's there in the Bible that's just there for you to know, like trivia. Everything is there because it has some application. It's meant to make a difference in the way that we understand our world and live our lives. It's something that you can obey. It's something that you can test. It's something that you can practice. And, And here's the key thing about this passage. If you didn't know this about Revelation, here it is. This was written to a people who are in the midst of the most terrible adversity in life. It's written in cryptic, almost, almost impenetrable, impenetrable language to us. It's written almost in code to a church living under the fires of persecution. The whole book of Revelation is given to people living through tremendous suffering some of them even facing the possibility of execution. Again, I, I don't know what 2023 was like for some of you. For some, it was a yay God year. For some, it was a I hope I never see another one like it kind of year. For most of us, it's going to be a mix of the two. But if you look back at any moment where the adversity felt like it was about to drown you, Revelation is the book that was written for you. Remember, the the revelation, what's being revealed is Jesus, the living hope of the world, and and that not only did he come, but he's coming again. And it's intended to stoke the fires of hope in the lives of people who are about to, to endure real fire or be fed to lions or suffer all manner of persecution. You might want to say to them, "What well, what difference could this possibly make?" Well, here's one of the remarkable facts about Christian history: the comfort offered by the Book of Revelation. Not only did it work a little bit, it, it, it worked dramatically, the people who received the words of this book walked into lion's dens singing hymns. They went to the stake singing hymns. The living hope, Jesus came to them and said, look what's in store for you. Look and see, taste and feel the newness that is to come. They got a hold of it and they were able to face the most unthinkable of things. It's why why Tertullian, one of the great leaders of the early church, said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You ever heard that before? The blood of the martyrs is seed? Why is it that the Christian church grew so rapidly and dynamically? Why did it explode? The blood of the martyrs is seed, Tertullian said. People looked and saw how Christians handled adversity. They saw how they handled the plundering of their goods, the murder of their families. Non-Christians looked and said, it's unbelievable. What is it these people have found that allow them to live this kind of a life? The blood of the martyrs is seed. What do they have? And the same thing that's in front of you right now. Revelation 21. What are you doing with it? What kind of problems do you have in front of you? What do you face this coming year? If this hope was sufficient for, the, for them, don't you think it might be sufficient for you? How does it work? It uh, must be something like this. I mean you, you 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 take it in. A lot of people think Christianity is sort of like a virus that you catch. You hang around Christian people and you get their disease. And well, maybe, but I don't think that's exactly true, and neither do you. Christianity is is truth that you take in. It's you take Jesus in and then you begin to work it out. For example, Paul has this place where he's talking about the hope that we have in the future. In Romans eight, Romans 8.18, if you want to turn to it. Paul says, For I reckon, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time aren't worthy to be compared with all the glory that shall be revealed. Romans 8.18. You hear that? Let me repeat it. I reckon that the sufferings of this present time, all that adversity, all those challenges, not even worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed that word reckons an important word it's an accounting word it comes from the realm of finances it means just to count a reckoning means an accounting an audit it's an audit in which you count the figures you see what's here what's there Do they balance? What do we really have? And Paul's doing the math on life. I'm going to live 70 or 80 years. And yeah, I'm going to have a little bit of trouble. And I might have pain in my later years. But what is that compared to the glory that's about to be revealed? What could compare to that? And so he's reasoning it out. He's working it out. He says, maybe, for example, listen, I'm sick. But the great disease that has afflicted the world, sin itself, has been healed. I'm going to live and reign in a glorious body forever. Or maybe you say, I have some terrible debts, but the great debt, which is sin, has been forgiven. It's been dealt with. And now I have riches beyond the imagination of any earthly billionaire. He's reasoning it out. He's, he's reckoning. Are you reckoning? You have the same riches promised to those early Christians. Are you auditing what you have? For I reckon, Paul says, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed. If you're willing to compare the two, if you're willing to do the audit, reckon, work it out, you'll find that the future, the level of fear goes down, the level of anxiety goes down, the level of confidence and conviction goes up, the level of hope is sustainable. And I don't, I don't want to suggest that you won't still face adversity, that there won't still be disease and decay, that you won't sag and lose some more hair. <laughs> but you'll do the math, and you'll realize that there is no comparison. Let me give you one other little quote out of Lord of the Rings. This is a place where, where Sam, don't you think Sam was the real hero of that story? Yeah. I love Sam. Sam, the real hero of the story, is about to give up. He's about to abandon the great quest. He feels like he's going under. It's just, it's too much. Too much adversity. Too much persecution. And He's looking up into the heavens and he sees a star. And this is what Tolkien says. The beauty of it smote his heart and hope returned like a shaft, clear and cold. The thought pierced him. That the shadow of evil in the long run was only a passing thing. And there was light and high beauty forever beyond the reach of darkness. Tolkien's describing hope. This is what hope looks like, this is what hope does a shaft of light that persists even when there is passing darkness. It's not the same as defiance. You know, hope and defiance, they're both ways of standing up in the face of suffering or or adversity. But in defiance, you're thinking primarily of yourself. You snarl and you say, I don't care what comes. I'm up to it. I can take it. I can do it. Defiance starts with the word I. I'll do this. I'll do that. I will survive. It's not the same as hope. In hope, you say, wait a minute, I may have problems, but I see that there is light and high beauty forever beyond the reach of shadows, and the problems I have now are passing things. Why? Because of who owns me, because of who my master is. And if you reckon what it is you have coming, the sufferings of this present time, The math. The math points you to the truth. Revelation 21 verse 5. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And he says, write this down. There is a hope that we have in the future. But there's also something going on right now. Don't miss the... The tense, the verb tense in that verse. Not I will make everything new. No, it's going on right now. I am making all things new. You can write this down. That's, that's for now. You see where he's speaking from? He was seated on the, on the throne. You want a taste of that newness in your life? I, I don't mean that you get it all now. Glorified body, new creation, new heaven, new earth. Not like tomorrow God is going to heal everything wrong with your body that's not the promise that God will heal any sickness any time no, but that the newness of the future, the promise of what God will do, has a way of leaking into the present, newness of strength, newness of resolve, newness of thinking, newness of feeling. It all comes into your life now, but it comes from the throne, so it comes. To the degree that you are under the lordship of Jesus, to the degree that you are submitted to him, that newness begins to flow into your life. If you say, I don't feel like I've got much of that going on right now, then go to the throne. It's very simple. You go to the throne and say, yeah, there are all these areas in my life, and I know I'm not submitting to you in these things, and this year I want to surrender. I want to let Jesus Christ be king. And I'm going to start that now. And then see if a little bit of that newness doesn't begin to flow. People who receive it are those who, who've not learned what it means to come to Jesus, not just as a life preserver, not just as Savior, but, but as King and as Lord. The very end of that passage, the one that kind of feels like it ends on a down note, cowardly, unbelieving, vile, murderers, those who are sexually immoral, and the list goes on, thrown into the lake of fire. So we read that and we think, well, well who is it then that, uh, that has access to this great promise, newness, off there and a taste of it now? And we, we think, well, it must be the opposite, those who are sexually pure, those, those who didn't murder anyone, who, who were faithful in their marriage commitments, and, and on through the list, those who have sound doctrine, but that's not what it says. It doesn't say those who are sexually pure and moral and honest and believe the right things. Those are the ones who get to drink from the water of life, who inherit all of this promise, all of this newness. No, what does it say? Who is it that has access to those? Those who thirst. Those who thirst. To those who are thirsty, it says, I will give to drink without cost from the springs of the water of life. It doesn't say the good people, the moral people, the upright people, they come to the throne. It's the thirsty. It's those who come and say, I know I'm not good enough, but I thirst. I thirst for you. I need you. It's what it takes. I don't know where where you stand this morning here we are at the doorstep of the new year but i'll tell you something on this first sunday of the new year if you've never received jesus as savior and lord what better way to begin your journey through 2024 and you go to him and just say i thirst i thirst you don't start by saying well lord I'm cleaning up my life. No more sexual immorality, idolatry, no more dabbling with the occult, dishonesty, no more lies. Now, frankly, uh, you should deal with all that, and I hope we are dealing with all that. Life will be better when we deal with those things in those ways. And you'll be submitting to God's will in your life. But that's not where you start. You start simply by saying, I thirst. I thirst because I can't be as pure and I can't be as moral and I can't be as upright as I need to be and I need you. I need your salvation, your forgiveness, your mercy, your strength. I thirst. And it's the thirsty ones who are received in heaven. Not the great people. Stunning in their seeming perfection. There are some people who are bad. There are some people who are relatively worse. But it's the thirsty who are let in. Let me give you one more scripture and then then we'll wrap it up. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that God delights in those who thirst. This is what Paul says. Not many of you were noble. Not many of you were good. Not many of you were influential, but God chose the weakest of things of the world to shame the strong. And God chose the foolish things to shame the wise. And God chose to despise things, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that nobody could boast in his presence. If we're going to boast, we will boast in him and him alone, not in anything that we think we've achieved, no matter Who you are, where you are, you go to him. You pray the prayer of thirsty people. You say, Lord, I need this newness of life. I give myself to you. I want to obey you in the areas where I'm not obeying. Let newness flow. Behold, I am making all things new, God promises Maybe we should respond. Why don't we do that? Let's spend some time in prayer. God, we step into this new year, uh, some with great excitement for what it holds, uh, some with great fear because of what it holds. Um, and we know, uh, if we're being honest, that this year we'll have many surprises and some some will light us up and some will break our hearts. But we, won't, we don't want to step into the year without you. We don't want to miss the promise that you gave us in Christ, the, the newness of life, the, the promise of eternity, not just time, a length of time, but, but a quality of life living in you, living with you, living in the perfection and beauty of what you had in mind for us and for the world. And God, we know that that promise, that hope, it's not just far off, it's, it's here and we can taste it now. And so God, I want to step alongside anyone in this room who in this moment wants to claim it and, and acknowledge it and maybe it's for the first time simply by saying, Heavenly Father, I thirst for You. I don't even have all the words to ask for it, but I'm asking just the same. I receive You. Everything that Jesus stood for, talked about, died for, was raised for. I want it, I need it in my life. I thirst. And then I pray that day by day through this year, You wouldn't just leave me as I am, but that in increasing ways, you would breathe newness, freshness, vitality into me as a taste, a foretaste of everything that is to come. And we'll give you praise. We'll acknowledge your glory, even as we have a chance to catch and reflect in the smallest way the glory of God in our own lives. God, we bless you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.